Good morning and greetings in Jesus' name this morning. I'm glad for the presence of each one of you, especially our visitors. Welcome and worship with us. Today's Father's Day. You know that. And um, I don't know, but I, I have never had a topic on Father's Day. And I'm finding it a bit of a vexing thing for several reasons. It seems like whenever I reflect on my tenure as a father, um, my mistakes and my failures seem to be more outstanding than any of my noble examples, it seems. And so that makes me a little bit self-conscious. Um, I recently talked to a man and was rather impressed with his family. I didn't know him well, but anyway, I, I just commented that I, I appreciated his family or whatever. And he said, you know what? He said, it's more because of, how do he say this? It's more in spite of me rather than because of me that my family are, is what they are. And I can, I can relate to that. I can relate to that statement. The other thing is preaching or teaching on a subject such as this, such as this is a bit problematic because I really do believe there is, there is um, latitude within the boundaries of what is acceptable as far as a father uh, ordering his household. Okay, I think, there's, I think just because of our personalities and our experiences in life, there's going to be a, some latitude within the, the realm of right. So that, 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 that presents a challenge in and of itself that as the presenter uh, presents um, some thoughts that is outside of or not maybe doesn't quite fit the listener's um, view, there, there could be a, a, um, a possibility that we would want to zone out. And so what I would like to say to that this morning is just listen and, and tweak anything that I say to fit your situation. I want to present to you the Bible. I don't want this to be my thing. I want it to be the Bible's thing. But as I give thoughts, consider it and tweak it to, uh, to, your, to your situation. And I readily and willingly admit that I am way more of a student than an authority on a subject. I'm also convinced that as I look out over this audience this morning, I'm looking at the top tier of society's fathers. I'm just absolutely convinced of that. Uh, there is a great dearth in this society that we live in of godly fathers, and uh, I, I'm, I'm happy to say that I believe I'm looking at, at uh, to use Bernie Sanders' thing, the top one percent of the one-tenth of the percent or whatever it is, but it's, it's right up there, okay. All right, I've entitled my um, talk this morning Lessons from the Legacy of Two Fathers, and I want to just pull two fathers from um, the Bible, consider them, consider their, um, their example. Uh, one was somewhat of a miserable failure, and the other one was a very shining example. And uh, i just like to learn some lessons from these two men. Turn with me to the book of 1 Samuel, and you know right away who I'm going to be talking about. Um, out of the gate. I'd like to comment just briefly a little bit before we get into that. What is a legacy? When I talk about a legacy or I use that word, what is that? 
Well, the dictionary says it's something that is transmitted by or received from an ancestor or a predecessor from the past. So when we talk about a legacy, we're talking about something that a person leaves behind. What lingers on after that person is gone? What's the thing that he is remembered by? What did he strive for in life? What did he accomplish? And usually, generally speaking, that can be summarized in a sentence or two. It doesn't take much. And the other thing that's somewhat amazing, you know, um, I feel like I know the majority of you relatively well here, and you're a big part of my life. But you know, once, once we were off the scene, you give it about a generation, and there is not much that will be known of you of anything. What I know about my great-grandfather, E.B., is one thing. The man was stubborn. That's all I know. You know? And that's what lingers on. That's the legacy that he left. And, um, you know, and, and I'm sure he had good traits and stuff, but that is somewhat what he was known for. Um, and maybe that's because maybe I wasn't told the proper things, but that's what I, was what I think of. You know, a legacy also... It's something that we really don't get to choose uh, by simply saying we want to be remembered in a certain way. I find it interesting that uh, uh, in, a, in, a, in a paper that I get, uh, a dairy paper that I get, and I'm sure you dairy may get it too, the Dairy Star, there's, there's always this little, um, they call it, they, they, they pose questions to a certain dairy woman, and one of the questions that they will often say is, what do you want to be remembered by? And, and they'll have this, this, this wonderful, why would it be remembered as this loving, caring, whatever person, whatever it is. Well, that's great to want to be remembered like that. But you know what? If you're not that, that's not how you'll be remembered. So what you want and what you'll actually be remembered by or, or what, what, what people will think of you as could be, could be somewhat different. Uh, so that's, that's um, maybe something we should keep in mind. I think, it's, I think it's good for us to remember that our legacy will be the cumulative actions and attitudes that we expressed as we move through life. And whatever that cumulative package is will end up being your legacy. And that is what will end up flowing out, touching your children, touching the generation that follows. I think that one of the greatest legacies that a man can have is to see his children come to age and embrace the ways of the Lord. And many have the privilege of watching that next generation do the same thing. And that's, that's a blessing. John says in his book, in 3 John, a very, very familiar verse, I have no greater joy, none, no greater joy, than to hear that my children walk in the truth. And I'm sure I'm talking to a, a room full of fathers that would testify that that, that brings us great joy as well. Unfortunately, and I'll say this uh, right out of the gate, unfortunately, not every child chooses well. There comes a time that a child, every person on this earth, must make a choice. Will I go with God or will I veer from something else? And no matter how great an effort we can put into teaching and, and training and doing our best, there could come that time that that child would decide, you know what, I'm, I'm going to go a different direction. And if we have done what we could, um, Ezekiel 18 is very clear that God holds every person accountable for his actions. And we can't say, well, I'm a crook because Dad was a crook. No, indeed. Um, the, 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 the prophet Ezekiel there says, get rid of that stinking parable you have that says, 
you know, the, we've eaten sour grapes and our, and our fathers have eaten sour grapes and our teeth are set on edge. If your father ate the sour grapes, his teeth are set on edge. And if you do that, yours will be. So, I, I want to just, I just want to say up front this morning that I'm not presenting this to make anybody feel bad. Because I know there's, there's people in this group that, that do feel bad. That they have had children that, uh, that have not chosen. Um, what they would have wished. And, and that's not, that's, I don't mean to um, add acid to a wound here this morning. But I would like to, to consider two examples and legacies of two men in the Bible here. So, 1 Samuel, the, uh, the prophet or priest, Levi, or Eli here. I'm not going to read um, any section of the first four chapters here uh, precisely. But I would like to just look at him, so I'm going to jump through the first four chapters, picking out things that uh, we can learn from Eli. So I'd just like to uh, give you briefly what Eli was statistically, what we know about him statistically. We know the man was a Levite uh, from um, chapter 1-3, chapter 2-28. We know he was a Levite. We know he served as high priest, and we know that his tenure was about four years. 40 years from um, chapter 4 verse 18. We know that the man had two sons, at least two sons. He may have had more children, but we know he had at least two sons that served as the role of priest of the people under their father. And their names were Hophni and Phineas. And uh, verse 3 of chapter 1 brings that to light very, very quickly. We know the man was a, was a heavy guy. We know he had a weight problem. Um, it says uh, in chapter uh, 4.18, that the man was heavy. And um, evidently that was a quite a defining characteristic uh, because uh, the Bible, the Holy Writ, um, tells us that this guy was heavy. So evidently it was, it was more than just a simple um, uh, God-given characteristic. It seems like his unrighteous indulgence in, uh, in the sacrifices of the people could have been part of his weight problem. And I, I get that from... Uh, chapter 2 verse 29 when the prophet comes and talks to him he said uh, you make yourselves fat on the cheapest of the offerings of the children of Israel so it, it's possible that that he had a he was a bit of a glutton perhaps perhaps we know the man was blind we get that from uh, verse um, um, uh, where did I find that again I believe I have the wrong I have the wrong reference. Um, anyway, there's some place that it, oh, verse 2 of chapter 3, it says that his eyes waxed dim. So he was at least semi-blind. And uh, apparently the man um, was married. He had children. But we'd known zero about his wife. We don't know who she was. Um, no, we know that nothing of her. So that's, that's Eli statistically. So what do we know about his strengths and his opportunities and his blessings? What do we know about his strong points? Did Eli have any strong points? We generally think of Eli as this, this man with a real problem. But uh, actually, if you look at it closely, I think Eli had some, some strong points. Um, in chapters 2, verses 27 and 28, whenever the, uh, the prophet came to Eli to talk to him, he specifically said that, you know what, Eli, you have a real opportunity. You were chosen 
The Lord chose your tribe from out of all the people of Israel to serve the Lord in the temple. And you have to understand that is a great responsibility and blessing that you have, Eli. The prophet uh, pointed that out. You know, Eli, you're the high priest. Do you realize the blessing and the responsibility that you have here to, to, to do this service? So that was, a, that was an opportunity that he had. And it seems like in some ways he, he took this opportunity uh, very seriously. And um, I take that from the fact that when Hannah came to the temple to pray there and he observed her, uh, he took an interest in that woman. And he said, um, at first of all, he said, well, you know, I think this woman is actually drunk, you know, and he, he approached her about that. And, he, and it seems like perhaps he was concerned with, with this drunkenness in, uh, right in the very temple, which was strictly forbidden. You never come into the temple uh, drunk, okay? That was, that was something you didn't do. And so he, he went to her and he said, you know, uh, put your wine away from you. But then once he learned the truth, he, um, he blessed Hannah. And I mean, you, you could just tell he did an about-face and, and suddenly he was, you know, Hannah, I, I hear your heart cry and, and, and I bless you for, for your... Um, for what you want. And may the Lord grant you what you want. So we, we, we find this interchange with Hannah. And we find that it, 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 he had a concern for at least her. And I think it's, it's likely that other people he, um, he had good interchange with as well. It would seem also, uh, another good point here of Eli, that uh, he was a, at least a decent mentor to the, uh, to the child Samuel. Once Samuel came and... and um, and uh, lived with Eli there. In verse 1 it says, He ministered unto the Lord before Eli, or under Eli's tutelage. And uh, we don't necessarily have any um, reference to the fact that, that Eli was doing poorly. It seems like um, he, he maybe was, did okay in, in that particular uh, situation there with Samuel. Another... Um, Another good point, I believe, of Eli is in um, verse 18 of chapter 3. Whenever Samuel came and, and, and Eli said, you tell, me, you tell me what God told you last night. So Eli, Samuel did that. And um, then Eli says, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good. We, we don't find him uh, bristling at what Samuel told him. We don't find him, um, um, you know, trying to find a way out or saying, that's not fair, that's not the way it is. It just seems like he said, it's good, it's the Lord. A resignation to the, what the Lord had for him. Seems like that could have been a, a good point. And then um, one of the last things we know about uh, Eli is whenever the, uh, the, the people were out fighting the Philistines and they weren't doing very well, so they said, ah, we'll, we'll take the ark out there. Maybe that'll help us out. We find that in chapter 4 there. And... Um, and so they did that. And, and that greatly concerned Eli. It said he sat by the road and he worried about the ark of the Lord and what would become of that thing. And so I see there a man of concern about, um, about the things that was under her, his care. And in this particular case, it was the ark. He didn't have a nonchalant attitude about it. Like, ah, well, you know, whatever. If it comes back, it comes back. No, indeed. It seems like he, it says his heart trembled for the ark. And uh, whenever he heard, when that when that man came back with that with those bad with the bad news that his sons had been killed and uh, the ark had been captured, it was too much for Eli, and that's where it said he fell backwards and he broke his neck. Well, 
Let's look a little at Eli's problems and some of his mistakes now. Despite Eli's strengths and his opportunities, he did have some grave failings that ended up being the demise of the potential of his family. In chapter 2, verse 12, we have a description of Eli's two sons. It says they were sons of Belial. Now, in those days, we don't, we don't use that terminology too much, but if somebody would say that somebody else was the, were the sons of Belial, that was as low as it got. That was a descriptor of a scoundrel, a person that was evil personified, sold to Satan, somebody that had no regard for the Lord. It said these people had zero regard for the Lord. And the ironic thing was, these men were the priests. And they were sons of Belial. I, I mean, the, the irony of the whole thing is almost more than one can get his mind around. But that's, that's how they are described. And it seems the crux of their sin is several fold. And I'd like to just walk you through, um, without doing some background on, on this, it's not readily apparent what their sin was. But as it turns out, um, these offerings that the people would bring in the context here, the offerings that it's referring to is what is known as the free will or the peace offerings. That, that, that those two terms are used interchangeably through the book of Leviticus. And what it was, there were several sacrifices that you had to make every year, whether you wanted to or not. They were commanded. You do this on this certain day and this certain time in this certain way. Well, on the, on the peace or free will offering, it was just like if, you know, one of us would decide, you know what, today I want to bring an offering to the Lord. We just go out, we, we grab one of our lambs and we haul off to the tabernacle, and here we are. We're gonna, we, we just are thankful to God today, and we're going to make this sacrifice. So that offering was a little different. It, 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 was, it had a different thing. So um, what would happen is when you brought that animal there, the animal was killed, and they would take off the fat from the animal, they'd take out the two kidneys, and what was called the call of the liver. I'm not exactly sure what the call of the liver was, but some part of the liver. And that was taken away and it was put on the, on the, on the altar and it was burned. That was the sacrifice to God. That was the sacrificial part of it. And if you read Leviticus 3, it, it says there that, that it was a sweet savor to the Lord. So that you know, just the fact that this was an offering just out of the man's heart and this offering was sacrificed, God said, that just really smells good to me. Okay, so that, that was the first part. A special notation here is that uh, in Leviticus 7, the Israelites were strictly forbidden to eat the fat of an animal. And I'm going to read these verses to you. In Leviticus 7.22 it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel. Ye shall eat no manner of fat, of ox, of sheep, or of goat. For whosoever eateth the fat of the beast." of which men offer an offering made by fire to the Lord, even the soul that eateth that shall be cut off from the people. I mean, it wasn't just a little sin to eat the fat. It was a big deal. You don't eat the fat. That's the Lord's. Okay? So, that, that's how important that was. So, after this, this sacrifice was made, next the breast of the animal was cut off, and that was given to Aaron and his sons. That was how they lived. That's, that was their meat. The, uh, the free will offerings, the breast of the free will offerings. And then the priest that was um, uh, making the sacrifice, 
they chopped off the right thigh of the animal, and that was his portion. So that's how these, these men got their, uh, their meat, you know, as, as time rolled along. So finally, then we have what's left. After the sacrifice is made, the breast and the thighs cut off, whatever was left was for the guy. He took that back home and he had steaks for supper. That, that was his, that was his um, he could do with that what he wanted to. He could eat it. And um, depending on why he made that free will offering, there was a stipulation that either had to be eaten that day or the next day. So it was, it was kind of interesting how that, um, you know, it had to be eaten fairly quickly, but, um, but that's how it was done. As a matter of fact, I failed to write this reference down, but if you want to take the time to read through the entire book of Leviticus, you'll come across this verse. But there is a verse in there that would give the idea that perhaps you never were allowed to eat an animal without first presenting that animal as a free will offering. Um, And and I I failed to write that down, but I know it's there. And if you want to take the time to dig through Leviticus, it is there. So, you know, if you decided, you know, I want steak for supper, um, you had to go do your free will offering and then come back. And, you know, it's pretty much a day's job, I guess, you know. So just kind of a little bit of an aside. Well, apparently, according to chapter 2 and verse 13, in the course of time, things had changed. Because now it seems the accepted practice was that whenever somebody came with a free will offering, they threw the thing in a, in a cauldron, and then they took a three-pronged fork and they jammed it in there, and whatever came out, that was the priest. It was, a, it was a, um, indeed a deviation from what um, was instructed by God. So it seems like the first transgression of these men was the fact that no longer did they just take the thigh and the breast, which was supposed to be theirs. They were jamming the the three-pronged fork in there and bringing up what they wanted to. And I wonder if perhaps the reason that was done was because they got tired of thigh and breast. They wanted... They want another part of that um, of that particular animal, so we'll just be a little selective where we throw our fork, maybe. Conjecture, perhaps, but maybe it was no 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 less. It was a digression. The second transgression was probably even more grievous, and I get that from um, verse 15 um, of chapter two. Also, before they burned the fat, and now you remember how serious this was not to eat fat. Before they burned that fat, these people would come and say, hey, give me flesh to roast for the priest because he's tired of this sodden flesh. He's tired of this cooked stuff. Give me, this, give me the raw stuff. And don't worry about taking the fat off either. And then, uh, so that's transgression number two. And then if anybody was bold enough to say, wait a minute, you, you realize this is not the way it should be, he'd say, so much for you, I'll take it. You just get out of the way. If you don't give it to me, I'll just take it. I mean, such horrible activity at the temple of the Lord is almost hard to believe. And then, uh, as if that wasn't enough, in um, chapter, chapter 2, verse 22, it appears that there was sexual sin taking place right at the tabernacle. Uh, these men evidently, apparently, were, were uh, committing open, openly known Adultery with the women who helped at the tabernacle. So to say that these men were sons of Belial perhaps isn't an overstatement. Um, it seems like they did sin fairly grievously. 
In chapter uh, um, or verse 17 of First Samuel 2, it says, "Wherefore, the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for the men abhorred the offering of the Lord. The entire worship of the entire nation was defiled, because I believe there's a good possibility that people were not inclined to worship God because of these blasphemous actions that these men were were." Uh, having right there to tabernacle and they were supposed to represent God to the people well God's pronouncement of judgment was clear and harsh in um, verse 11 of chapter 3 the Lord said to Samuel behold I will do a thing in Israel at which both the ears of everyone that heareth it shall tingle in other words what I'm about to do to punish this household for their sin is going to be amazing it's going to be absolutely amazing. Why was God so hard on Eli for the sins of his son? It seems like that um, the as we read through these chapters, it seems like it kind of boils down to two things. In chapter 3, verse 13, for I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knoweth because his sons made themselves vile and he restrained them not. He knew it and he refused to do anything about it. And that word restrain there is a little, has a little bit of a different meaning than what we think of when we think of restrain. When I think of restraining, I think of sort of a physical thing or perhaps... You know, I mean, a very action verb is what I think of when I think of restrain. If you look it up in the Greek, actually this word restrain here would have more the idea to just take a dim view of or to frown upon it. It almost would have the idea that Eli even refused to take a dim view of what his, of what his sons were doing, which uh, even, even is more egregious in many ways. We do find in... Uh, chapter 2, verses 22 to 25, that Eli did take the time, once upon a time there, to chide his sons just a little bit about what they were doing. But it seems like his motivation was more out of the... because of the stories that were getting around than because he really had a heart for his sons. It feels that that's perhaps his motivation. The other thing that we find out about Eli... Um, is what the prophet told him. In other words, why was God so hard on him? In verse 29 of chapter 2, the prophet says, You honor your sons above me. You know, from God's perspective, the boys were getting more honor than he was because Eli was, was ready and willing day after day after day to watch that... Um, Watch that particular, those sins take place and, and apparently could have done something and chose not to. And God said, you're honoring your, your boys above me. Well, his legacy is not very good. If you turn to 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 27, here we have when, when Solomon is coming to the throne and there's some transition taking place. And I'm just going to read this verse quickly. Solomon thrust out Abiathar from being high priest unto the Lord that he might fulfill the word of the Lord, which he spake concerning the house of Eli at Shiloh. 
So generations later, we still have people being purged from the office of priest because of Eli's sin many, many generations later. Let's learn a few lessons from Eli. And uh, I would just like to name a few and, and let you think about it. Some things that uh, I, I um, reflected upon as I was studying this. Number one, I think a good, a good father must take the job of ordering his household seriously. I mean, that's nothing, no aha moment here from anybody, but right? Absolutely. It seems like that becomes increasingly clear as we read the, the, um, the account here of, e, of Eli. I had to think of uh, what God said of Abraham in Genesis 18:19. I know him. And I know that this man will command his children and his household after him. And they will keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment. That's the polar opposite, apparently, from what Eli did. I really believe that uh, it is our calling to make sure that we, we take, make every effort in ordering our household very seriously. All right, number two. Second lesson from, uh, from Eli here. I think we should be careful as fathers uh, not to be motivated to order our household based on what other people think. And I alluded to that earlier. It seems like that's why he finally got up the gumption to go to his children and say, you know, you really shouldn't do that. And he says, I'm hearing this bad report. It feels like that the rebuff came simply because he wanted to retain a reputation of some sort. And I asked myself, and I ask you this morning, what motivates me to, um, to train, to bring my children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? Is it because I am, I am concerned about their eternal souls? Um, or is it because I'm concerned about my reputation? I just want to make sure that my children look good. You know, is, is that is which is, what is the driver? I don't think we should um, we should just want performance out of our children. I think we should want um, real heart uh, change and motivation for doing the right thing. Number three, I think a father needs to be careful. We as fathers need to be careful not to neglect our families as we engage in other important responsibilities of life. And as I reflected on this, and this is conjecture, so you just think about it, and um, I wonder if there's not something to it. Do you think Eli was a busy man? I, something tells me he was. You know, he's the high priest. He's got all this responsibility. Could it be that as he's busy there offering these sacrifices for the people that come along and doing all the other things that a high priest has to do, that somehow or the other his children slipped through the cracks. Is, is that possible? Was it important that he functioned as a high priest? Sure it was. Was it important that he paid some attention to his children? It seems like God would have thought he had a time to do it. It sure seems like he would have thought that. You know, sometimes I, I think I'm tempted to uh, put the bringing up and nurturing my children on the back burner somewhere after I wash the car. You know, we need to engage our children in our washing of the cars, not after we wash the car. Let's include our children in our activities. Let's engage with them. Let's find ways in our occupations and our callings that we can 
be with our children and do like um, the, the uh, familiar verses in Deuteronomy, that we engage with our children when we're sitting in our house, when we're walking by the way, when we're lying down, when we're rising up. How does that fit into my life? How does that fit into your life? There's got to be a way that we do that. Otherwise, we're going to miserably fail. Number four. A father, we as fathers, must be careful not to wink at the sins of our children. And I pointed out that verse in chapter 2, verse 29, where God says, You have honored your sons above me. And it says, You have made your fat, yourselves fat on the choicest of all the offerings of Israel, my people. Is it possible that Eli was subtly giving vibes to his children that you can kind of fudge on God's laws and everything will just turn out fine. If he was indeed participating in that mediating process, he was certainly winking at sin. I think you would agree with me that in the whole thing of raising children, we can't start too young. We just can't. I think children must be taught that disobedience is wrong, it's never funny, and it must be appropriately dealt with in a timely manner. And it must be done with love. Absolutely must be done with love. Paul talks about bringing up children in the nurture and admonition of God. You know, I think when we, uh, we endeavor to do that, we must keep a delicate balance between being our child's friend and our child's authority figure. And I think if each of us are honest with ourselves, we will find that we gravitate toward one or the other. Some of us tend to be more authoritarian. Some of us tend to be more friends. And if, if you identify which you are, take heed that you don't go too far in that direction. There has to be a balance. There must be. And it probably will vary a bit with uh, our children just where that balance will end up being. It seems like Eli here failed perhaps in the authority department, perhaps. And I think ultimately he lost their respect as a father. Never allow, we must never allow our children the liberty to flaunt a rebellious attitude toward us, toward other God-ordained authority, or toward godly rules of life. It became very clear to Saul one day that when Samuel told him that rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. And if you read 1 Kings 1, which is a good exercise, we won't do that. But there we find out that the man David had a son by the name of, um, let's see, Adonijah, his name was. And we don't know much about Adonijah, but we do know this. It said, David his father never once displeased him, saying, why hast thou done so? In other words, he never took the time to discipline or challenge his son on his, evidently, his misbehavior. All right, the fifth thing I'd like to learn from, from this man. I think we need to be vigilant as fathers not to participate in our child's sin should they choose the wrong way. And again, I'm coming back to that verse in, in chapter 2, verse 29, where... It feels like the prophet is telling Eli, you've made yourself fat on the choicest of the offerings of my people. It seems like Eli could have participated in that. Unfortunately, sometimes our children choose wrong, and that, and that, that breaks our hearts. We don't like that. But should that happen, let's go to God and let's figure out 
how can I still love that child well and yet not participate in his sin? And I'm not going to enlarge on that. That's, um, that varies from every situation. But never, ever give your children the uh, tacit approval of their misbehavior. We don't know anything about Eli's relationship with his sons as boys. We, we don't have that. But we know that God held him accountable for what happened when they were adults. So it's, it's, I think it's right to deduce that there was probably some major mismoves there. I really wonder if he, uh, if he shepherded his children's heart the way he should have. Well, let's go to a brighter note. Let's talk about another dad for just a few minutes that we know less about than we know about Eli, but had a very happy ending. This man's name is Jonadab. We don't know much about Jonadab. There's only two verses, I believe, in the Old Testament about Jonadab. The one is in 2 Kings 10.15. And this is when the, when the king Jehu is uh, purging the, the land of the house of, Israel, of uh, Ahab. I'm sorry. And uh, it says, And when Jehu was departed thence, he lighted on Jonadab, the son of Rechab, coming to meet him. And Jehu saluted him, and he said to him, Is your heart right, as my heart is right? Or, I'm sorry, as my heart is with thy heart. And Jonadab said, It is. And Jehu said, If it be, give me thy hand. And he gave him his hand, and he took him up into his chariot. The other uh, reference we have to... um, to uh, Jonadab is in Jeremiah 35, and you and you know that uh, that chapter very well. But there we have this this incident where Jeremiah comes to the what we know as the Rechabites, and he has a challenge for them, and he says, "I want you to take wine, and I want you to drink it." And he said, "No, we won't do that." And he said, "Why not?" And he they said, "Because Jonadab, our father." has told us that we shall not do this. He said, they said, he told us five things. He said, you shouldn't drink wine, you shouldn't build houses, you shouldn't plant anything, you shouldn't have a vineyard, and you should dwell in tents. That's the five things that John and Dad told us. And so we won't drink this wine. Now, that's not as impressive as it becomes whenever you realize the span of time between the time John and Dad told that and when these Rechabites were talking to Jeremiah. It's a whopping 275 years. Do you know of anything that anybody said 275 years ago that you're still doing? I personally don't. But somehow, that stuck. That stuck. The question has to be asked, why did that stick? And I'm going to give a, a hypothesis. In Deuteronomy, whenever they're just about to enter into the land of Canaan, uh, over and over, Moses emphasized to the children of Israel, when you get in there and you dwell in houses and you eat of vineyards that you didn't plant, and you have wine and you have all that plenty of stuff, you will forsake God and you will worship idols. He tells them, you will do that. He does it a few times. He says, take heed that you don't. But there is a few times he says, that will happen. Could it be that Jonadab took that really seriously and he said, you know what? If this thing of living in houses and drinking wine and having vineyards is going to cause me so much grief that I'm going to forsake God and I'm going to serve an idol, I don't think I'm going to do it. I think I'm going to go out there and live in a tent and not grow anything. Complete conjecture, hypothesis, but I wonder. I wonder if that's possible. I'm going to briefly run through some lessons here that we can learn from John and Ab. I'll try to keep it real brief. Why did he succeed? Number one, I think it was because John and Ab 
Jonadab's heart was right. When Jehu said, is your heart right? He said, yes it is. His religion was authentic. Rather than like Eli who passively snubbed his nose at God's direction, this man was a visionary. And he took some very radical application to himself and he requested it of his family. Remember this, there's nothing wrong with radical if it makes sense and if it will keep you with God. It's all right then. And you know the other thing that's interesting? When you read over what, what he did, it sounds pretty pharisaical. It almost sounds like something you read about in the New Testament about Pharisees that did all these extra things. But for Jonadab, it worked out. That's the stunning thing. Number two. I wonder if Jonadab um, gave more than just the instruction to do this. I believe he gave compelling reason they should do that. I believe he emphasized the why as much as the how, or probably more than the how. And folks, that's where we as fathers sometimes mess up. At least I do. We're so concerned about the how. The how. Do we take the time to make sure our children understand the why? Once they get the why, we probably will not have to worry about the how all that much. Number three. I don't think Jonadab lived any different than he requested of his children. And the application is simply this. There's nothing stinks more than a double standard. If you request hard things of your children, you make sure you're living hard things yourself. Do not try to live a double standard. There is nothing that reads easier than a hypocrisy meter pegged out. Number... The next thing I have here, I think he had a good teaching program and he talked about his convictions with his children. And that's maybe a little bit redundant. But I wonder if he didn't say, you know what, children, the reason I'm doing this is I'm looking out there and you see the land today. People are turning from God. I don't want you to do that. And this is why we're going to do these radical things. This is why. And the last thing I have here, uh, back to the radical choices that Jonadab made. I think a lesson we could learn is that his posterity convincingly exemplify the fact that it is possible to successfully practice and retain good, and I might say very countercultural, tradition for many generations and not have it morph into dead traditionalism. There's a difference between good tradition and dead traditionalism. Traditionalism is void of God's blessing. Good tradition practice to honor God is not wrong. Traditionalism is. The very fact that these practices were not specifically requested by God and served a very good purpose of keeping their hearts turned toward God for many generations is indeed stunning. You know, I think we as fathers, to make an application, need real wisdom in this area. I don't think it's ever wise to request our children to be different from the crowd for no good reason. Just, be, just, just to be different. We're just going to be different because, you know, we're perk holders. No, it's not going to work. But I think it is right if we see that there's something, there's something we sense that's, that's uh, kind of becoming the in thing or the... Um, it's, it's kind of where the crowd's at. And we sense a real danger there. There is absolutely nothing wrong 
was setting our children down just like John had have and saying, you know what, we're not going to do this and here's why we're not going to do it and here's what we're going to do. I just don't think there's anything wrong with that. And here's why I think that. This man had a legacy too. You remember the legacy of Eli and that was that even in the day of Solomon, it's still remembered. His, 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 his legacy was people were being removed. Um, not a good legacy. But in Jeremiah 35:18, I'm going to read you the legacy of uh, Jonadab. Jeremiah said unto the house of the Rechabites, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Because ye have obeyed the commandments of Jonadab your father, and kept all his precepts, and done according to all he hath commanded you. Now here's what happens. Here's the promise. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, not thus saith Jeremiah, or here's what I think. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Jonadab, the son of Rechab, shall not want a man to stand before me forever. What a legacy. What a legacy. Well, this morning we have two fathers. We have two examples. And we have two legacies. And I think it's compelling for you and I to consider which one represents us.